pose, n'est-ce pas C'est Jésus qui m'a fait ça. Les stigmates Jésus-Christ a choisi notre bienheureuse sœur. Santa Benedetta. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Itchdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by fellow medieval historian Annalena Mueller to talk about 2021 film Benedetta. So Annalena, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you, I guess, agreed to discuss this particular <laughs> film since I invited you on specifically for this? Sure. I'm a medievalist like Sarah, obviously, and I'm a medievalist with early modern affinities, which probably comes in handy since today we're in the 17th century. And what also comes in handy is that I specialize in nuns, in medieval nuns. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think it's the combination of the two that make you extend the invitation. Yes, exactly. So very, very glad that you were able to join me to talk about this uh, recent and uh, interesting film. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> very interesting film, yes. <laughs> yes. Benedetta was released in 2021, just a few mere months ago, directed by Paul Verhoeven. So, of course, somebody who is very much a, you know, director with a kind of particular sort of, I don't know, kind of auteur reputation and very much a kind of sense of, you know, an aesthetic and a kind of set of goals and interests that he comes into in his films. It's actually not his first medieval film, although the other Flesh and Blood I have not actually seen. Me neither. I think but, yeah. basic instinct. I think that's like his most famous. Yes. Like. Yeah. And he also directed Starship Troopers, which is uh, then a kind of like another another direction in some ways, but uh, <laughs> some some kind of thematic connections in some ways. I'd say it stars Virginie Efira as Benedetta, Charlotte Rampling as Felicita, Daphne Patakia as Bartolomea, Olivia Rabodan as Alfonso Cecchi. And Lambert Wilson as the papal nuncio in Florence. And he is actually the, uh, the Merovingian in the Matrix movies. Oh, I didn't know that. Other, otherwise, uh, Charlotte Rampling is, of course, an excellent actress who has been around for a long time and has been in a lot of things. Otherwise, I mean, um, the, the, actress who play, the actresses who play Benedetta and Bartolomea are both relatively young. I'm not familiar with them from anything else. At this point, we can get into our first main section, the enumeratio or recap, where we can delve into the details of this particular film. This is, of course, a movie that centers on Benedetta, who, uh, spoiler for an upcoming section, is a real person, Benedetta Carlini, and focuses on her experiences as she enters into this convent, begins to have uh, these mystical visions. Also, as the film prominently features, has a relationship with another nun. And as in this film, we have her then kind of having this uh, very intense trial and near execution, which again, spoiler, is not quite exactly how things happened, but. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. And it sounds so you know, it sounds so straightforward as you as you tell the story, but it's actually in so many regards, there's so many like shocking images and provoking, yes. you know, like 
sure she has a relationship with another nun but um it's intense <laughs> everything is <rather> yes <laughs> yes so let's get into some of these details and some of these uh, very intense moments in this film we begin in fact with uh so we have her uh, en route to the nunnery it starts when she is a child and so she's you know en route to the convent and we introduce this kind of really dramatic episode in which she and her family are you know attacked and near robbed by these brigands of course they are you know, of course. It's, it's late medieval, early modern Europe, and this is how we're introduced. It's really not safe anywhere. They are there traveling to the convent, and then it's a Paul Verhoeven moment. Mm -hmm. You have like the apocalypse <laughs> starting right away. <laughs> and it's the first moment you're so grateful you're not living then, but today. Which... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the sense of, you know, it was very violent back then. Violence is this kind of constant and unrestrained presence in people's lives. Only, in fact, are they, you know, prevented from further harm by the fact that Benedetta at this early age in fact, seems to uh, have something of a miracle performed on her behalf in the form of basically this bird shitting on this guy's head. <laughs> yeah. Because, Which because, yeah, she said, you know, the bird is like the spirit of the Virgin Mary. And then, you know, this happens and that kind of scares them off, basically. Because they're also all very religious, because that's the second yes. thing we need to know about the period. Everybody, mm -hmm. even the evil guys, fear God. Yes. Interestingly, the brigands fear God, but as we'll get into later, some of our ecclesiastical figures, in fact, they don't fear, fear God, God quite a bit less. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so she is brought into the convent. Uh, we spend some time haggling over what her dowry will be, uh, since you you need the dowry to enter the convent. Which is actually great. That was the first scene yes. that I really, really like. It was like, wow, he he like he being uh, Paul Verhoeven. He studied his, like, you know, the basic mm -hmm. medieval economic aspect of monasticism because, um, mm -hmm. and actually the, the, the abbess who does the negotiation is one of my favorite characters in this movie. Yes. She's, like, she's, she's really cool on most or many occasions, but I think this, this scene is actually fairly realistic. Yeah. Right? So, and also it's like he has to pay money and I think then in oranges, so you have this mixture mm -hmm. of, of food and naturalia. So when the first scene, when, when they are almost dropped, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be very long, two hours. And then, you know, you have these abbots and they start the negotiation. I'm like, wow, this is actually a decent depiction of, yes. of history. And there was, I feel like the movie was a lot of back and forth between the two, between like right. WTF and wow, well done. And oh my God, back to oh my God. Yeah, and I will say my general vibe of this film is that somebody involved, uh, whether, you know, Verhoeven or other people, you know, consulting or something on this film, people did their research. Yes. They sometimes then ignored their research and did whatever they felt like doing. But people actually did research. And I will give this film credit for that, is that somebody learned something <laughs> from this movie. Definitely. I would totally agree to that because when they depict something wrong, I think they do it knowingly. So yes, they absolutely. do it not, like not in many, you know, Hollywood productions you have, you watch them as a historian, you go like, oh, come on, really? Like yeah. this is the middle ages, they're eating tomatoes, you know? So it's like, yeah. When, and you're just like, okay, you didn't, you didn't read your history book. But in this case, it was right. like, okay, he, he really knew, or they really knew what they were doing. So yeah, yeah I, I also, I do appreciate that part. Yeah. 
So she is brought into the convent. Uh, she is. She comes. She brings with her the statue of the Virgin Mary, which she has received from her very mother. important. <laughs> yes, which will come back later in us. <laughs> an unexpected manner. Uh, I mean, not not unexpected in the sense that I actually that was one of the things I knew about going into the film. Oh, you um, did? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, that was one of the things that I I saw or heard about at some point in the kind of conversation around this film. I actually knew that that one was, uh, was coming. And so I had a sense uh, upon <laughs> seeing the Virgin Mary statue at this point that like, ah, yes, this is, uh, this is a foreshadowing statue of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Good for you. So you were spared the shock. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I I read enough about the film that I had a sense of what I was getting into, I guess I would say. Life in a convent is hard. She loses her Virgin Mary statue. She has to take off her nice dress and put on the, you know, itchy monastic robes. She has, of course, also been, you know, removed from her family. And so she has this, uh, the statue of the Virgin, which is in the convent. Uh, She says, you know, this is her mother now. And she prays to the statue, which then falls fully on top of her. There is this So she kisses the statue as it falls on top of her. This is one of these details that isn't coming from nothing, but that is interpreted to some extent in the kind of most sensational way possible in terms, first of all, of I think the way the kiss is depicted, it is more sexualized than I think in terms of the way the kind of, you know, I like the virgin, the statue of the virgin moved, and I felt it was because she wanted to kiss me in terms of the kind of original way that was described in our source material. The sense I think is of that as more maternal and less sexual. The statue also didn't fall all the way on top of her, it just kind of fell, kind of, kind of like slight started to fall toward her, but did not completely topple off the podium. Yeah, I think these, these scenes are well, they're not subtle, but they are subtle, right? So they play yeah. with something because you would in pre-modern spirituality i mean it's it's fine to kiss like a statue of the mother of god it's just like it's a very different kind of kiss that you would do so hoban uses this and and twists as you'll twist an entire movie like even innocent or religious gestures and turns them into into something sexual and it's it's something you know that that we just also that we that we mentioned so he has a lot of the historical stuff right like the itchy dress that she's separated mm-hmm. from her family she complains about being lonely and this is what monasticism is even if you live in a community you live by yourself it's it's yeah. it, it's it's the whole and you're supposed to be living by yourself right mm-hmm. so i mean this, this is so he he has like he has this complete awareness of these things and what and then all of it, like all of a sudden, like you go like, oh, this is a really good historical movie. And then he does the thing with a statue and she kisses yeah. her in not that <laughs> way that you would expect. Yes. Yeah. And again, this is very much, and this will be a theme throughout the film, right? Is that again, Verhoeven or somebody else involved did their research and uh, they're very much drawing on real knowledge and on late medieval, early modern realities in terms of uh, the experience of life in a convent, in terms of mystical culture, in terms of things that we see in the kind of real accounts that we have of Benedetta's life, but often kind of takes them, I think, very deliberately in the kind of, again, most most sexualized and most sensationalized direction possible. Definitely. (laughs) 
We now jump to 18 years later, where we have this theatrical performance starring Benedetta as the uh, dying Virgin Mary, who uh, then in the midst of this performance, it has a vision of Christ who is calling her to him as his bride. But again, something that's kind of coming out, certainly, of, uh, you know, real mystical culture in terms of kind of ideas of, you know, first of all, nuns in general, as metaphorically speaking, the brides of Christ and uh, certain women mystics is kind of having this experience of uh, this kind of these kind of affective experiences and visions, seeing Jesus in this particular way. Yeah. And even if, if we look into mystical writings, if we read them today, they, they seem actually fairly sexual. Often they seem very yeah. erotic. So even even that part of, of her, you know, relationship with Jesus as his bride mm-hmm. and um, is partially a bit touchy feely, that, that part is actually not so yes, off. Right? Exactly. Exactly. And that part, I was like, all right, all right, I'm here for, I'm here for this. And this is something <laughs> I've been kind of saying for years is that I would love to have more films that kind of acknowledge and uh, kind of delve into that, which is something that I did uh, like about this, but uh, that, you know, as we will go on, there will be things that are uh, a little bit more Hmm. problematic (laughs) yes yes they're having their feast we learn at this point uh, that the provost of Pestia has ambitions uh that the the bishop of Milan has recently died he seems like he kind of ideally would have his eye on this position but knows that he's not quite important enough so we're kind of getting uh, these uh this kind of sense of Perhaps reasons why some people might uh, particularly want to be supportive of uh, a visionary of some kind. Visionaries and mystics and saints are perhaps kind of good for good for towns, economically speaking. Definitely. And this is another, I think, topic or theme that Verhoeven gets and, and his team get right, right? So that the church or the for ecclesiastics, this is also a possibility. It's, it's a career yeah. path. Um, yes. And that'll play, that'll play a role for the nuncio for the abbess there there's this really interesting combination which seems strange to us today but was not strange for medieval or early modern people is that real spirituality and deep religious feelings can totally go hand in hand with personal ambition yes. um, this does not exclude each other at all mm-hmm. and that's definitely something is that that yeah i think is is very well portrayed yeah, and that it's, it is, you know, something of a trope, I would say that you have uh, often in films, uh, these ecclesiastics who are portrayed often very much kind of as hypocritical, right? And I think the move with these is interesting in that I don't think they're quite as hypocritical as they typically are. I think there is more of a sense of them having genuine religious feeling, but that also coexisting with these, yes. these ambitions and other goals. Yeah, I think this is definitely true for the abbess uh, Felicita, who's just a like sort of a minor character in the movie. But I yeah, like she's one of my favorite. I think she's one of the most interesting characters because she's the most yeah true character. The nuncio, I think, yes. is maybe more portrayed as as hypocritical, like with his pregnant yes. lover and right builds milk courting milk. And, <laughs> You know, getting back to the sensational part, but we, we might get to that though. <laughs> yes, but yeah, but yeah, I thought was excellent. And she also, she she's very kind of entertainingly snarky at points, right? Like she has, <laughs> she has the kind of best sort of dry wit lines over the course of the film. Definitely, definitely. We now at this point meet Bartolomea. We see her uh, being chased and beaten by her father as she, who is calling her, Oh, what is the, 
I can't remember, harlot, whore, well, I can't remember which exactly was the term the film uses at this point, you know, but something along those lines. And she is saying that she then wants to enter a convent and basically Benedetta and her family intercede and agree to, you know, pay the dowry on this girl's behalf. I have a lot of thoughts which we can continue to get into about the choices of how they depict Bartolomea, that they're very invested in essentially creating this class difference, which I don't believe there's any evidence for. Actually, I'm not sure. I don't think it's, it's we might, I don't know if we're going to talk about the, the book this is based on, because there are a couple of problems yeah. with, that, with it also. Yeah. But uh, um, it's definitely, I don't think that the class difference is as marked in the sources as it is portrayed in the film and um, yes, yeah. let's, let's talk more about this. Also that the choice is made. So, you know, basically Benedetta is kind of showing her the ropes and, you know, going, you know, helping her get cleaned up, which also is done essentially in the most kind of sensational way possible <laughs> with a lot of like accidental kind of breast grabbing. Um, yeah, as it happens. <laughs> as it happens. a new novice, you know. Yeah, just, you know, a little accidental breast grabbing between novices, going out to, you know, show her where to go to the bathroom. At which point, Bartolomea also then informs Benedetta of her recent past, which is basically the us that after her mother died, she was constantly and regularly raped by her father and brothers. And that brings us back to the, to the pretty much opening of the movie, in case you forgot, the pre-modern area is extremely violent and really, really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that, especially given that it's like a weird throwaway line that is never really meaningfully dealt with, I was not fond of that particular choice in the script. And especially that it then like leads into this flirtation as Benedetta's like, oh, it's because you're so beautiful. It's, it's a weird scene and I did not like it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm with you. We see their relationship continue to develop along with Benedetta's visions. We have our interesting episode in the course of uh, our, you know, devotions the following morning. Bartolomea kind of shows up late and then grabs Benedetta's ass in the middle of services, at which point Benedetta then has this vision of snakes from which Jesus rescues her in a slightly more kind of sword-heavy fashion than one often imagines <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the trashy splatter part that also repeatedly show up in this, in this movie, right? So, right. Yeah, that's one of those moments. And felt very much in some ways like there were, like there were these kind of points here and there where it's like, we're telling this story, right? Which is centered on a convent. It intersects a lot of social and religious history. It's not your sword forward medieval epic. And it seems like almost it's like somebody got a note saying there aren't enough swords. Could you find another place to put in some swords? This can't be pre-modern Europe if there aren't any swords. Right, right. Uh, we'll, give, we'll give Jesus a sword to cut off the heads of the snakes. That'll do it. <laughs> Benedetta is sort of trying to come to terms with her visions. We then have a kind of odd move, which in her 
relationship with Bartolomea, where Bartolomea bangs into this other nun. They knock some of the bobbins, so some of these kind of things that are used for their silk weaving work into boiling water. Benedetta forces her then to pull out the bobbins with her bare hands from the boiling water. That isn't foreshadowing a toxic relationship. I don't know what is. Yep. <laughs> yep. And there's there's a lot of toxicity in this relationship, I will note in advance. And I will also note, like, on both sides, I don't think either of them are excellent partners. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I'd agree. <laughs> So there's, there's a lot of issues that we are seeing here. Felicita de Abbas is uh, not, not quite impressed with this choice of Benedetta's. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of calls her out for her, uh, you know, like, oh, suffering leads us to God. And she's like, I'm not sure that means that you get to like inflict the suffering just as you <laughs> choose. Uh, we also meet another nun, Sister Jacopa, who I will just sort of mention now is, she seems to, I guess, uh, I guess have breast cancer? Yeah, that's, yeah, probably, yeah. It looked like yeah. a tumor sort of leaking another one of these images that kind of stay with you, at least stayed with me. Yes, yeah, and it is, you know, this kind of very disturbing image of, you know, her, you know, clearly being in kind of like late stages of, you know, untreated breast cancer. She also kind of makes the seemingly sort of non-sequitur remark, though I'll mention later what the source of this is, that uh, she had once been a Jew and also comments on the fact that, you know, this this other nun used to be a whore and they, you know, think I'm worse than her because I used to be a Jew. Having then uh, had this experience of seeing, of seeing and uh, kind of caring for Jacopa with her, uh, with her, you know, breasts that are obviously, you know, looking very different from normal. We then have Benedetta kind of taking out a mirror to examine her own breasts, as one does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Foreplay. Ah, uh, yes. Benedetta then ne- enters the uh, the next stage in her mystical experiences, which is that she is constantly screaming and writhing in pain. There is nothing visibly wrong with her, but it is uh, clear to everybody that she is obviously not doing great. At this point, there is this uh, kind of episode where as she is lying chained to the bed, Bartolomea comes and kisses her and asks if she wants to be with her. There are Again, talking about how, you know, this relationship uh, has a lot of toxic elements. There are questions of consent in this particular scene. And Benedetta, meanwhile, dreams that she is being chased by bandits, that she is on the verge of being raped. And we've got what she thinks is like Jesus hacking at them with her sword. And then it turns out that's not really Jesus. It's just a whole, a whole real experience instead of visions. Just the usual. (laughs) Just the usual. Bartolomea at this point is tasked to be Benedetta's constant attendant, given the fact that she is kind of going into these uh, these sort of fits of extreme pain. We also then at this point, we have our return of our devotional statue of the Virgin that it is uh, recovered as they are kind of looking for, as they're kind of looking through, I guess, I, I was just kind of like digging through the drawers for some reason. I wasn't exactly quite I, quite, I kind of missed what was the kind of context in which they kind of happened to come across her dress and her statue of the Virgin, but uh, but they do at this point. 
We have some more visions, we ha- including so this uh, one with uh, Christ on the cross who demands that Benedetta strip as, you know, and I will say as Christ on the cross uh, actually has done in, <laughs> vis- in visions that there are, you know, that there are visions that kind of indicate that like, we are not clothed in uh, these particular mystical experiences. She touches the wound in his hands. We have a lot of moans in, you know, intersections between pleasure and pain. And uh, she wakes up uh, naked and with her hand now bleeding. She's She's got the stigmata. Fun times. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yay. To, I mean, they had to come. It's it's like no, no mystic. Like, who wants to be taken seriously can do without stigmata. Though... She doesn't have the full, the whole deal yet, right? Yes, they are concerned about both the fact that she received the stigmata while sleeping rather than in prayer, as well as the fact that she does not have the marks of the crown of thorns. So she only has the wounds in her hands and feet and on her side. Because that's, I think, another interesting aspect that even for the things nobody can explain, the inexplainable Mm -hmm. The church will find rules. So, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so even for the divine that we cannot understand, for miracles, there are rules. So you don't get stigmata while sleeping. You get yeah. them while praying. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there's stigmata that you're, you can expect to get. And then it has to be the, the, the whole deal. So, yes, your hands, yeah. your, feet, your side. And especially, like, I mean, you, Jesus wore a crown of thorns. So you need to have them on your head. And if something of this is missing, then it might not be Jesus. It might be the devil, which is always a right. huge problem in mysticism, mm-hmm. right? Like, where do these visions come from? So I think, you know, this is, this is again, really well portrayed and also kind of in a funny way. Yeah. Yeah. And it is uh, drawing on, you know, some of the things that came up in actual investigations, right? And some of the kind of conversations yeah. around uh, specifically whether this is, a vision that is in fact from Christ, whether it is a vision from the devil, whether it is, uh, you know, to some extent, a kind of sign of her own vanity. These are real questions that people were considering about Benedetta specifically and about mystics in general, that these might be kinds of things that uh, that would be discussed and interrogated. So. Definitely. And especially in regard to Benedetta, you kind of alluded to it. Uh, one of the yeah. big questions where if, if this is not vanity, because it's not only the marks that she doesn't have the marks right, she's she's a very unusual mystic, at least the, the yes. real person, right? Who demands yes. a lot of attention for herself, uh-huh. which is also, it's not how you do it, you know? It's just right. not, this is not how the, the rules. Right. Go. Yeah, that she's kind of one of those people where, you know, one, one can certainly look at and ask the question of, you know, well, of, well of, is she doing it for the attention to some extent? So... Yeah, and I mean, yeah, definitely. Having been informed that she's missing her crown of thorns, <laughs> Benedetta one. gets gets her crown of thorns. We hear her start yelling from the hallway. She's been, you know, kneeling in front of, I, I think it's a statue of the Virgin again. As she is doing so, she, uh, she now has, you know, she's gotten her crown of thorns. They notice some glass on the floor, perhaps relatedly. And, and she starts- Incidentally, you never know with God. You never know. And she starts yelling in this kind of male sounding voice about how she is the reason, you know, her as the bride of Christ is the only reason that plague has not come upon Pesha and uh, that they should basically stop persecuting her. Yeah. 
how, you know, how convenient. Yes. So here we also get some amount of skepticism that is quite visible. We see some from the Abbas Felicita, who clearly is skeptical, but also to some extent is kind of hedging her bets in terms of what is the right move to make and kind of wants to sort of keep her opinions to herself. Whereas we have this other nun, Christina, who is her daughter, and Christina is skeptical and is already expressing some sense that she thinks this is something that she should speak out about. Benedetta. Yeah. Benedetta gets a new heart from Jesus. Uh, again. It's too big, and that's quite painful, but I think this is this is also a true part. I mean, true part in yes. the sense of this actually shows up in the sources, this this miracle, right? Yes, and uh, and in the it's actually even in some ways kind of interestingly more extreme in the actual source material, in that she in this experience, it actually says that her heart was taken from her. She lived without a heart for three days. <laughs> which also kind of shows up in the visions of Catherine of Siena. So it's not something that's fairly unique and that then she is given this new heart and this new heart is too big and that Bartolomea has to like press it down further into her chest. So when we have this depicted, but of course we have this depicted in the way of I'm feeling my, my heart. It's so big. Uh, you cannot see this listeners because this is not a visual medium, but I'm using scare quotes as uh, this is essentially just uh, kind of presented in some ways as a kind of excuse for Dotolomea to fondle her breast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we're back at the sensationalism. Yes. <laughs> At Mass, we now announce that God has decided that Benedetta is abbess now, which Christina protests about, because it should be the nuns who get to actually choose their own new abbess, and instead the provost has just kind of imposed Benedetta upon them in accordance with the supposed will of God. Felicita then, you know, is, you know, quite calm and gracious about this, but as she is moving out, she leaves open uh, essentially this kind of little hole in the wall. So she kind of leaves this kind of peephole through which she can uh, check out what's going on in the room. And I think that actually the convent, historically the convent elected. Yes. Elected Benedetta. And so she was not imposed as, as, as abbess. It was, well, the, we'll talk about the, the, the convent later on, I think, but it's, it's part of a reform monasticism, right? Which yeah. means that the abbesses were only elected for, th- for three years, which all, like in this, in, in the movie doesn't play, it's, it's not important. But before this background, I think it's actually interesting that Verhoeven chooses mm-hmm. to have the nuncio, a man, overrule the convent's traditional right mm-hmm. of election. Um, right. And I think one of the things that I actually appreciate, appreciate about the movie is that Verhoeven and his team address a number of issues within the church then and today. And I think one of the issues he's mm-hmm. addressing is the role of women. Um, Absolutely. The very limited agency of women. In, and I think this is one of the moments where, where this is yeah. particularly visible. So he has the, the bishop, the cardinal, intervene and the nuns actually cannot do anything yeah against or about it so I think that's pretty pretty interesting yeah which definitely was very interesting uh I I did have the I had as on the other hand I did have a slight, a slight kind of quibble in the sense of that her election was in fact a kind of normal and above board you know her being chosen by the nuns and so I I found it to some extent frustrating that in some ways like arguably 
the nuns in this particular situation did in fact have, or at least they you know, exercise a greater degree of agency than they are then presented as having in this film. But I think it is interesting in terms of kind of thinking about the, the sort of back and forth, right? And the kind of way in which on the one hand, there is some amount of autonomy and agency, but on the other hand, that they are very much limited in really practical ways by male ecclesiastical figures. Yeah, so though I would argue that actually this is more true for today, for today's church, than mm. it mm-hmm. is for the pre-modern Interesting. Church. Especially like, when, and I'm sure we talk about this later, in order to depose, which will be the case for Benedictine, in order to depose somebody who's elected mm-hmm. to the church, it's actually, it's, it's, it's quite difficult legally. And one yeah. way you can do this is by proving that they have, for example, sexual relationships, which makes uh-huh. the whole investigation interesting source material interesting and also problematic because these kind of narratives not with lesbians but with nuns with abbesses and priors having sex right are very very common in in legal proceedings when you try to get rid of them right because it's actually not so it's not that easy for a nuncio to show up and say like you're abbess and actually now you're not right (laughs) especially not in this in this period that the yeah. movie is taking place. Yeah, so definitely, definitely some interesting things happening here. Jacopa has uh, progressed further, sadly, in her illness. Felicita asked to stay with her, which Benedetta says, that's fine, but you have to, you know, come to the next service because Jesus said so, that you have to be at my first service as abbess. And I, I didn't have a lot of laugh out loud moments in this movie, but one of my laugh out loud moments in this movie was when Christina says, oh, you know, I'll stay with her instead. And Benedetta just responds, perfect. Jesus didn't mention you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, moments. <laughs> Just like throwing so much shade. <laughs> so we know who the, the, the friends, you know, those two girls will not be friends. Right. Right. <laughs> and Christina accordingly goes to confess. By confessing, she means telling on Benedetta to it. <laughs> It's like the, I, th- I find it funny that like the the boundaries between confession and like confession, which is supposed to be your, you know, essentially acknowledging your own sins and trying to find ways within confession to call out other people's sins. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and she, and, and again, and this is, you know, called out by the priest, right? By Father Ricordati, who is like, aren't you supposed to be confessing your sins? She's like, I accuse myself of the sin of silence. <laughs> <laughs> As Christina is uh, becoming emboldened in her critiques of Benedetta, Benedetta is teaching Bartolomea her numbers, an episode which then moves into our first full-on sex scene in the film with, uh, with these two women, which, so I will note that one of the things that was a strange choice in this scene is that there was a point at which Benedetta actually starts saying no and Bartolomea ignores her and keeps, you know, continues and keeps going at which point Benedetta does, you know, have her first orgasm. Congratulations, dear. Uh, (laughs) Good for her. (laughs) But again, getting into the kind of question of the, the toxicity in some ways of this relationship, right? The sense that this is not a healthy, a fully healthy relationship. What do you mean? No doesn't actually mean no. 
Yeah, exactly. That, and, and you know, and also, I, I mean, and in general, I don't love choices in film where her no is, I think, kind of fundamentally ambiguous. Right. I think including that ambiguity around consent at all is a choice that I often kind of find problematic. But then certainly, you know, the the no as being, you know, not not acknowledged and very much kind of fully ignored is also, I would say, you know, not, does not speak super well for this relationship. <laughs> for some reason, they do think that, you know, continuing to like make eyes at each other over breakfast after this is a, you know, good move to make in their like stealth relationship. Yeah. And it's also very subtle since they're having breakfast, I think, with the rest of the convent. Um, yeah. He's already suspicious. <laughs> yes. The priest announces he's uh, going to, you know, have a the biblical reading, which is, it mentions just as an offhand line. We never actually get the reading, but that the reading is from Leviticus, which I mention only just as a kind of interesting little touch that I kind of wondered if this was deliberate in that while Leviticus in the Bible in general, it's says basically nothing about women having sex with other women, it would, of course, be in Leviticus that we have the prohibition against male homosexuality. Hmm. So I wondered if that was supposed to be a reference there. But we never actually get our reading from Leviticus, because instead the priest calls Christina out and tells her to make her accusation in public, which she does. And Christina, in order to give added force to her accusation, takes it a step further in terms of actually claiming at this point that she has in fact seen Benedetta cutting herself, but which uh, she did not in fact see, right? Then she came in at a time where she saw the glass and surmised that what had happened is that Benedetta had cut herself, but that she, she did not actually kind of see that happen and now claims that she had and that she told Sister Felicita as much and Felicita does not back her up, which, to be fair, she said she wouldn't. Right, but I guess Christina kind of hoped since Felicita is aware that Bernadetta is a fraud, and since Christina is Felicita's daughter, that she probably hoped in that situation her mom <laughs> would yeah. help her out. This is the only way to explain her shocked and dis- her shock yes. and disbelief at Felicita not, not doing it. Though, yes, yeah, her. Yeah, and the, and the two, I would say, also just having a very different attitude toward this whole situation, right? That both of them are clearly skeptical of Benedetta, but Christina is responding with, I would say, some combination of principle and maybe some amount of personal dislike in combination. And Felicita is very pragmatic about the whole situation, right? That in terms of kind of thinking about her own future and her own position, she does not think that there is, basically she does not think that denouncing Benedetta at this moment is the way to go. And she is standing by that not being the right choice. Yeah, and def- I mean, having a mystic, a potential saint is definitely good for the convent's economy, right? I mean, this yes. brings, so, I mean, Felicita, like this is how we how we met her, right? As, as mm-hmm. really the mother and the, the manager of, this congregation of, of nuns. So she keeps thinking about the good of the institution. And yes. um, which is, she may not believe in, in Bernadetta, but many people do believe in her at this, yeah. uh, at this point. And that's good for the fairly young congregation in a town that has mm-hmm. many convents and that aren't yes. with each other. So yeah. Felicita, you know, looks for the greater good. <laughs> Yes. 
Benedetta, again, at this point, speaks in a male voice. She says, Christina is possessed by Satan. She must have the devil driven from her body. And Christina flagellates herself. This is something else that is linked to a real episode of uh, Benedetta getting something of a reputation for being perhaps a little overzealous in uh, disciplining other nuns while abbess. And while not, you know, disciplining herself. So, I mean, yes. she will pretend to flagellate herself, but she really doesn't. Or yes. at least doesn't go, you know, doesn't doesn't really go at it while she expects pain <laughs> from, yes. from her subordinates. So, and it's one of the points of, of criticism that, you know, we find in the trial against her, right? So yeah, that in fact, there is this accusation made at some point that she's supposed to be flagellating herself. And she just takes uh, kind of like, like dips her fingers in some of the blood that's already on the uh, on the whip and like rubs it on her back. It's also pragmatic in a way, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But Christina is very clearly uh, properly flagellating herself. And, uh, you know, once again, this is uh, being done very much in the uh, most sensationalist way possible in terms of uh, the depicting of this whipping. Our statue of the Virgin Mary is back. Is back. And our statue of the Virgin Mary is now a Virgin Mary dildo. <laughs> and I so did not see that coming. Um, so it's <laughs> like, really? Yeah, yeah. This was one of the things that I, I think at some point I heard, and I said, and at first, the first time I heard it, I was like, that that didn't really happen, right? Like that's a that's a joke that somebody's making about the movie. It's not really something that's in the movie. And then I like read something else. And I'm like, oh, 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 that's in the movie. Okay. So I did know it was coming before actually seeing the film. And you know, it's still pretty shocking to actually see that happen. Yes. And like, you don't even have to, I mean, I didn't, you know, like it's not shocking because one is necessarily religious. I don't, you know, somebody who's really devout Catholic, that must be. Right. (laughs) And I'm not sure they would actually be watching that movie in the first place, but, um, (laughs) but, but that, you know, it is, it is very, it's a provocation. It's meant as a provocation, but I yes. found it interesting that it actually works also without being a devout Catholic. So I was, I was shocked. Uh-huh. I was like, that's either a very specific fetish <laughs> <laughs> and it's definitely not historical because I doubt no. that people who, you know, as we, as we talked about earlier, like there's no problem for pre-modern people to combine a deep feeling of you know spirituality and religiosity with mm-hmm. pragmatic ideas but I don't think they would have gone quite that far so right and and as well right that as we've also touched on that there is obviously language that we read that kind of reads very intensely sexual in mysticism and as we will talk about there are you know ways in which that is certainly coming up in Benedetta's trial that she maybe kind of crosses lines there beyond what is kind of considered to be a kind of acceptable intersection between sex and mystical experience but Well, this, I guess I would say, kind of crosses yet another line uh, beyond anything that she actually did. Definitely. Even in the most erotic, mystic narratives, I don't think, I mean, prove me wrong. (laughs) I'd be interested in writing an essay on this. But I mean, if if you find an example of a Virgin Mary dildo in uh, late medieval mystic writing, let me know. know, But I doubt, (laughs) I really just doubt this exists. This is just too much. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I also, I, 
I'm neither religious nor to the extent that I have a religious affiliation. I'm Jewish. And so like, I have, you know, no personal connection to the Virgin Mary. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I was, I was shocked. And it is. It kind of crosses a line, right? It's just like. Yes. Yeah. It's just not sexy. I'm sorry. I'm going to say it's just not sexy. No, I don't think it is sexy. No. Uh, it's shocking, but. That's it was also kind of hard not to kind of, I don't know, think about, I mean, because we do have her like kind of like sanding off the rough bits, but even with that, it's kind of hard <laughs> to think about like, I'm not sure this is quite the right shape um, in terms of like, I don't know what's like protruding at various, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure I'm just, yeah. not killed and, I mean, just, I don't know, like if, if people like everybody who's listening, if, if they've seen the movie, but this scene is, is really very explicit and it's yes I feel it's and it's long it's not just you know they don't just show mm-hmm. a virgin mary dildo and in the camera it's you know that would be one thing but no it's more <laughs> it's it's really you very see insertion yes <laughs> very pretty pretty clearly yeah we see more um, than we ever wanted to see at least you know speaking for myself <laughs> yes i would agree with that assessment <laughs> I don't, and for, for me, honestly, I feel like also I will say part of the shock also comes from the the history of the object itself and Benedetta's life, right? That is presented as this like thing from her childhood that was a gift from her mother. I feel like that also makes it actually some like weirder and more uncomfortable. And isn't like isn't isn't the statue sort of supposed to replace her mother? I mean, like if we bring Freud in this, you know, like I mean, <laughs> oh, yes, we, we could we could probably add another hour or two just discussing, <laughs> like yeah, putting, like adding a psychoanalytical perspective on this. I'm, I'm not even sure I want to go there, but it's, um, yes, <laughs> endless options, endless options of <laughs> interpretation here. Yes. We also see somebody spying through the peephole. Of course. Of course. I mean, we, you know, it's Chekhov's peephole, right? We had, we made sure to have, to have the peephole demonstrated. So now we have to look through the peephole. And of course, when we're looking through the peephole, we have to have the person looking see by far the most shocking possible thing that they could see in the context of this film. <laughs> <laughs> I guess God is also shocked because out the window, they see, uh, they start seeing red and there is a comet directly above the convent. Can you blame God? (laughs) Meanwhile, Christina jumps off the roof and kills herself. Yeah, we're definitely reaching like a first peak in this movie. Like everything is coming together. So suicide, also a mortal sin, of course. Yes, also a mortal sin. This, I will also note that this is something that I do not believe has any link to reality. I didn't see anything about this. Yeah. Felicita is obviously very, uh, very, you know, upsetting. This is, you know, her daughter, somebody obviously that she cared about. She yells at Benedetta, tells her to get away from the body, and she leaves for Florence. Benedetta now has this, another, I guess, like real toxic relationship scene now with Bartolomea, where she starts insisting that her flesh is also uh, God's or Jesus's flesh. Bartolomea kind of expresses that she, you know, is disgusted with her, which I kind of wasn't sure to some extent where exactly that change came from, because until then, Bartolomea was of anything kind of presented as being like the main initiator. Like she, she is the one who has the idea about the Virgin Mary dildo. 
<laughs> indeed yeah so it's 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 a rather sudden change in their in their relationship but um the rejection doesn't stop Bernadetta right so oh, right who just stands there and masturbates while she then starts talking to Jesus yeah As because you know. obviously we just had suicide now we have masturbation which again I think is technically only illegal for men in the bible so I don't know if this is well, it's probably, I don't know if this qualifies as a mortal sin, but it's definitely, it's definitely not good. <laughs> in the, you know, I mean, yeah. in the grand scheme of things, it's, I don't think it's as bad as Virgin Mary dildo, but. Okay, but in the grand scheme of things, nothing is as bad as Virgin Mary dildo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just a genius idea of Verhoeven or evil it genius. Certainly, it certainly is impactful. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Say nothing else. I think I will never forget this scene. <laughs> no, no. I also will never forget that scene. And, and yeah, and so this scene is, you know, sure isn't that scene, but it is also impactful and very deliberately disturbing. Yes. Meanwhile, in Florence, things are going poorly. Plague is here. Everyone's dying in the streets. I will say there are some ways in which the kind of burial, the kind of, or the kind of put it, placing people into their coffins in the streets uh, kind of does actually sort of recall some medieval imagery of uh, the plague and its, uh, you know, kind of initial outbreak in 1348. So I'll give them that much that I think they are kind of making a reference there. We meet the papal nuncio in Florence. And this is again, uh, one of our, our gentlemen who um, perhaps is, so I have had more than once uh, have been forced and by forced, I mean, I guess I technically forced myself to watch the uh, Ridley Scott, Russell Crowe, Robin Hood film. And the friar <laughs> Tuck in that film describes himself as not a very churchy friar. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, he's not a very churchy nuncio. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is, this is not a very churchy nuncio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's uh, quite the career ecclesiastic with his... Lovely servant woman. <laughs> yes, his pregnant mistress who was wearing this dress, which even, you know, initially when she walked into the room, my first reaction was just like, that dress is, you know, barely holding your breasts in place. And then she just like whips one out to note <laughs> that she already has her milk coming in for her child, who is presumably the nuncios, and squirts the milk in front of his face which is a real move. As one does. But I mean, you know, we got it. We got to grant it to them. After the Virgin Mary dildo, uh, I promise. No, I won't promise. This is the last reference. I, I cannot promise that. But after the Virgin Mary dildo, it's really hard to, you know, come up with new shockers. But yet again, yes. Verhoeven actually manages to. So here's the pregnant mistress of the nuncio. Take out a breast, one of her breasts, and squirt milk. <laughs> so... And and I, I don't say, know how many minutes are between those scenes, but not that many. <laughs> mm -hmm. I will say, I don't know if this was something that he was aware of, but that there is squirting milk in uh, medieval, in uh, late medieval visual culture, that there are representations of the Virgin Mary squirting some milk at, of the, at Bernard of Clairvaux, that this is a, yeah, yeah. I so about that, yeah. We... We do have milk squirting in medieval art. <laughs> it's a thing, actually. Uh, <laughs> not quite this context, but <laughs> you know. Again, I, I you kind of you kind of wonder, like, did somebody actually do the do the research on this? So Felicita suggests that he come to Pesha to investigate. 
Meanwhile, in Pesha, they are processing through the streets with a crucifix, calling out for Christ's mercy. Benedetta, at some point, then eventually genuflects before the crucifix and announces that the comet is, in fact, a sign that God protects them and that specifically he will be protecting the city from the plague, basically because Jesus likes her so much. As part of that, they do also, you know, in addition to, I appreciate, actually, in addition to the spiritual step of, you know, this procession and this prayer, they also take the very practical step of uh, at least attempting to uh, shutting the gates and not letting anybody in. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, so the movie was done before, before Corona, right? So this was actually finished before Corona and he held off, Verhoeven held off sending it to the movie theaters because, because of Corona. So, but you know, the whole quarantine thing and situation kind of, you know, has a very up to date. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yes. But, you know, I do, I do appreciate this because and especially with our, you know, current plague times that you often, you know, see this kind of discourse basically saying that, you know, anything that we do badly is a quote medieval handling of the plague. And they did actually, they knew, you know, they they wore masks. I mean, they, they, they didn't know the details, but you know, the basic figured out in practice, you know, what, what worked. And so I, and so I do appreciate that they actually, you know, we see them taking this very practical step that would be a quite effective one of, uh, you know, if, if plague has not reached the city already, then not letting anybody into the city is a good way to avoid getting the plague. Yeah. Meanwhile, the nuncio makes his way to Pesha past some mass graves, some processions of flagellants. This, this in contrast, seems like a really good way to get the plague. And arrive and force entry essentially into the city against the objections of the provost who had not wanted to let them in, which he was absolutely correct on and should not. I mean, you know, obviously the nuncio kind of puts him in a position where he has to, but, you know, again, they were, they were trying to make this very kind of smart and practical decision of uh, not letting them in to prevent plague. And the provost also notes that Benedetta has died. Shock. Shock? Yes. You, as a, you know, watching the movie, um, you you don't expect that. No. Again, it's based on fact, like on the sources. Yes. They arrive, they're surprised to see a bunch of giggling novices dressed up as angels. However, they are told is a part of a divine revelation about the preparations for Benedetta's funeral. And as the nuncio administers slightly belatedly the last rites, Benedetta pops back up (laughs) and claims that- She pulls a regular Jesus. Yep, pulls pulls a Jesus. And says that she was in heaven, but has been brought back to earth. She says she, you know, saw everybody's uh, souls and everybody's ultimate fates, but that she is back to save them from the plague and from hell. Not nice of her. Yeah, no, she's, she's, <laughs> she's a good, she's a good girl. She's a good woman. Yeah. And I do always find these kind of things interesting in terms of that. You would think, I mean, they should be able to tell if somebody's actually dead or not. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, well, we we we've seen them early in the movie. We see them taking poppy juice, right? So, mm-hmm. but yeah, it would be a question: how how aware are they of dosage, right? Because I mean, if you can right. slower the the breathing, mm-hmm. I think you could possibly pass. 
Yeah. Dead, at least in the, you know, in, in, in the Middle Ages. Yeah. The precision of figuring out that dosage of not going to kill you, but going to make it look like you're dead. Right. I think it was actually conveniently precisely three days. Again, isn't that pulling a regular Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, that is absolutely pulling, pulling a Jesus. And so, yeah, it's kind, of, it, kind of interesting. So, yes, she, she pops back up. She's, <laughs> is informed as she, uh, as she awakens that the fires of hell are maybe not the ones she should be worrying about at the moment, <laughs> but rather the more worldly fires as she is being accused of heresy and blasphemy and uh bestiality is the uh term that they actually use at least uh, i i didn't quite catch the french but in the english subtitles huh well i guess that would be for having slept with a woman right because... and i mean because I mean... it's technically not sodomy right well I mean, it would be the only explanation that that's, you know, what they're, what they're sort of getting at, right? Right. Because, well, well, I mean, actually, no, this would be pure, pure speculation, but since nobody accuses her of having had sex with an animal. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so I, and given I was surprised. That, yeah. Given that there's no terminology for right. lesbian sex yeah and homosexual well homosexual mm-hmm. sex which would be you know sodomy or I, right you know, I mean, that would be the term used for men so yeah but i i think it i think it is interesting in that it does to some extent sort of reference the fact that to the extent that there is discourse about same-sex sexuality the vast majority of it is really only talking about sex between men and the idea of sex between women often seems to have kind of barely occurred to people Definitely, definitely. And this is what makes, you know, the story upon which the movie is based so interesting, because it's actually one of the very rare descriptions from early modern, from pre-modern Europe, that even when you read the sources, even though they don't have the terms, it's it's Mm -hmm. fairly clear what they are getting at. Yes. And so, I mean, you don't need to, you know, I often, you'll, you'll maybe have descriptions of two women friends who live like Mm-hmm. together and then you can do you know you can you can imagine but there's no no detailed description while here in the source material you really don't need much interpretive skill right yes it's it's it is a very detailed description and you know in that sense the maybe not the specifics but the explicitness of the film is you know to some extent is you know also is you know mirroring the uh, medieval source material yeah in that, you know, these are, these sources, you know, do not kind of shy away from describing in detail what happened, so. No, but this is also, I mean, like, that's when we're back at medieval texts in general, like we, we've alluded to when we talked about mysticism, I mean, they are not, they're not very shy, right? I mean, this is, no, yeah. they're not prudes. And no, not at all. In a convent either, so. Yeah. I mean, they, so that part is maybe more, again, like surprising for us, because we have these ideas of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Right? Then their very crude sense of humor and language uh, mm-hmm. that they that they did have, 
And that is something that I did appreciate about the film because I feel like it is so kind of common, right, to essentially to kind of take the view of the Middle Ages that basically the kind of Victorians who were sort of prudish tried to present of the Middle Ages, right? That right. we kind of have that medievalism as so ingrained in people's minds and the kind of just general assumption that basically, well, we must have just kind of gradually over time gotten less prudish. So therefore back then they must have been very prudish. And so I do like that in this film, we allow us to kind of move away from that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Because I think compared to some of the medieval literature, we're we're still way, I mean, we're prudish and they still aren't. So we're worse than they are. We're closer to the the Victorians than to the medieval. Yes. Oh, yes. So the trial begins and uh, Felicita states that she saw Benedetta and Bartolomea having sex through this peephole, uh, including eventually does refer to the Virgin Mary dildo. We also it's do, back. <laughs> uh-huh, it's back. We also do, I, you know, in relation to what we were talking about before, have a uh, the nuncio sort of asking Bartolomea, have you looked on Benedetta with lust? At which point Chucky breaks in and says, between women, impossible. <laughs> You know, but this is actually mirrored until what the 20th century that homosexuality was illegal in many countries, but usually yeah. in most cases only between men for right. the for, for the very reason that, you know, yeah, that it just doesn't occur to them that, that women could actually, you know, yeah. And at the yeah. same time, of course, the, the woman is always the temptress, right? So it's, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's like, I don't know, it's schizophrenic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's, it's really bizarre and really interesting that just like there is, I mean, I feel like there's just such a long history that even kind of shows up sometimes in like things that men say in the 21st century that kind of reveal that they just like fundamentally like don't understand like, but how, 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 how could sex happen without a penis? That there's just like this fundamental like inability of men to kind of get how, how sex could not involve a penis. <laughs> Well, that's where the Virgin Mary dildo comes in, at least, you know, in the yes, movie to help right. men understand. Exactly. Maybe, maybe that's the point of the Virgin Mary dildo. <laughs> maybe for the male viewers. <laughs> right. <laughs> On a less cheerful note, Bartolomea is taken to our casual makeshift torture chamber in the convent and... Uh, is tortured and confesses. And I will note that there is a torture instrument that, uh, well, is called the Pair of Anguish and is presented as specifically a very kind of sexualized mode of torture. I mean, essentially a kind of sexual, you know, kind of torture linked with sexual assault. That's something that was presented as being uh, inserted into her vagina. I will talk more about this, but I will just say for the time being that this is uh, not original to Verhoeven, but it is also not reality. (laughs) So she ultimately confesses under torture. She reveals the Virgin Mary dildo, which has been hidden in the hollowed out pages of a convent account book, which honestly, I'm watching this and I'm like, they cut up the account book? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's such a fascinating source. It's such a fascinating source. It's very, you know, potentially pragmatically important for the convent. It's like, I'm very, uh, I'm like, that's, that's what I'm shocked by is that they (laughs) they cut up this account book. 
Benedetta, you know, speaking again in this masculine voice, accuses him of blasphemy, of mocking, of mocking her as they, you know, as, you know, as they mocked me on the cross, right? So speaking as Jesus and says that plague is coming and she's correct. Uh, Felicita, we see, has the plague. And the nuncio, right? So. Uh Uh-huh. And the nuncio. So yeah, so plague had, as, as predicted, running through the, the like mass graves and the people who had plague, who started poking at you through the window, that was in fact a great way to get the plague. (laughs) The two of them have the plague. Uh, They are trying to keep that under wraps for the time being. The nuncio signs the order of execution for Benedetta. Benedetta requests both to pray with Felicita and to be led into the square on a donkey like Jesus was led into Jerusalem. Yeah. <laughs> so like Jesus reference. <laughs> right. And then it's just like, obviously I'm not doing that. Why do you think I would ever agree to that? <laughs> you know, can't blame a girl for trying. Oh, no, I love the move of asking for it. But I also just love that the Nancy is like, I, I, I know that reference. We're not doing that. <laughs> but she is allowed to go and pray with Felicita, who is in this moment on her deathbed. To some extent, I would say kind of comforted by at least kind of wanting to believe, perhaps, in Benedetta's visions. Uh, certainly the fact that she says that Christina is, has made it into heaven is, I would say, something certainly that helps there. Yeah, and I think that actually this is a very, you know, kind, this is where we see a very kind Benedetta, right? I mean, she's not yeah. taking revenge, but actually gives her, makes makes an effort to give to give mm-hmm. peace to Felicita. She yeah. didn't have to. Yeah. Been like, you know, she's not exactly been kind to either Felicita nor Christina, but in mm-hmm. this hour of her old, well, I don't know if they were enemies, but opponent dying, she actually comforts her. So, yeah, actually, I can't yeah. There was, there was a, a soft and nice side we saw of, of Benedetta there. Yeah, which I, which I did appreciate seeing. I mean, and especially, I think, if you kind of think about, in terms certainly of how it's set up in the film, that she, I think you can certainly say that Felicita certainly, you know, was a mentor figure to her, arguably something of a paternal figure to her, in terms of kind of how we see their relationship in the film that it's it's nice to see that she still you know has uh, has some kind of feeling for her and you know shows this act of kindness uh, even though Felicita is also responsible for her current uh, predicament. <laughs> yes, <laughs> she's led out to the square for her execution. Bartolomea, who's just kind of like running around in the streets, begs for forgiveness. I've uh, got got another kind of Jesus, you know, that Benedetta says it's fine. I had to be betrayed. So, you know, making making Bartolomea her uh, her Judas figure. Well, the crowd is not on board. The nuncio basically tries to uh, talk Benedetta into confessing her sins so she'll instead be strangled. Basically, it seems like in the hopes that it'll calm people down or at least that then people will, you know, be turned against Benedetta instead of against him. And things don't work out quite as he hopes. <laughs> she starts speaking as Jesus, saying that they will not be spared the plague, basically because they've been mean to her, and that the angel of death is here, and up pops in Felicita, dressed in black, and who reveals that she has the plague, and accuses basically the nuncio of being, uh, being the reason for this. The crowd goes wild. We've got this kind of real really interesting moment where we really kind of turn this scene into this uh this kind of like battle almost 
as the crowd, they actually stone the executioner, who then, you know, drops the firebrand and, you know, actually lights Benedetta's stake. Bartolomea and various other women do end up going and untying Benedetta and rescuing her. Others go attack the nuncio, who, uh, who you know, eventually is kind of stripped to reveal, indeed, that he does have the plague. And this lady just fucking stabs him to death. Yeah, because this this feels, again, like a scene where somebody on Verhoeven's team told him, like, you know, we had swords early in the movie and we had violence at the beginning. We need some more violence because this is like the Middle Ages or pre-modern Europe. So how right. about we have, like, everybody kill each other and, you know, have flames and violence and... Right. And, you know, and this is, I would say, you know, one of one of the kind of big, I would say in some ways the kind of most kind of dramatic departure, at least from these sort of outlines of what we actually know, in that she does not actually seem to have ever quite been, you know, slated for execution. <laughs> and that therefore there was not, I'm sorry to say, a like pitched battle involving, you know, revolt against the, uh, the you know, representative of the papacy. Uh, didn't, didn't, didn't have that one. No, sorry. Nuncio dies. Felicita walks into the flames. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> Benedetta and Bartolomea awake nakedly the next day in some shack somewhere. Oh, they made up, in other words. (laughs) Yep, they made up, but the reconciliation will be short-lived because Benedetta says that she she has to go back and Bartolomea says, no. No! (laughs) (laughs) Why would I do that? Yeah, it's like, and why would you do that? Right. And also really interesting that Bartolomea basically kind of is like begging her to say she's, you know, been lying about the visions that she's been lying about the stigmata. And we have this impression here, which I do think is interesting, that at the very least, Benedetta is presented certainly as believing everything that she has said about her experiences. Yeah, that she maybe convinced herself Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for whatever reason, right? But that she is, you know, that she's not exactly lying, right? That she, that she, as I said, that I think she, I think she believes in some sense that this is, this is something that is real, which is, is interesting, I think. Definitely. And she, she walks away back to Pestia and we are told in the end crawl that she was denied martyrdom and lived in the convent until 70 and that the city was spared of the plague. Happy ending. Happy ending, sort of, <laughs> I guess. Ish. <laughs> was denied martyrdom, a real, real high bar for a happy ending. Yeah, yeah. so that's yeah. the movie. That's the movie. And at this point, we've already touched on some of these details, but we can get into some more of uh, what the film gets right and wrong. So let's talk a little bit about convents and about the Theatines. Because there are some details that I think it does really well that we've already touched on, right? The sense about, you know, being important to have a dowry to enter a convent and that there are these negotiations that occur around that. This kind of sense also that there's insufficient space in convents, mm-hmm. that in the town of Pesha in particular, there's essentially more girls who want to enter convents than there is space in convents. And that this is something that uh, we have Felicita actually kind of bringing up overtly. And I appreciate that, you know, the, we have the nuns as involved in work, right? That the nuns uh, earn income through this, uh, this kind of silk weaving. I think they're, they're like weaving, weaving raw silk into thread. 
which would then be, you know, sold to people who would make that into cloth. Definitely. It also shows, this is particularly true for, for urban convents, as, as this is this is an example, is they actually, so money is a problem. Yes. They're not necessarily rich, at least not the convents that you as a more or less regular person have a chance of entering right. exactly. So economy is, is a big deal. And it's also a reason that explains and that why somebody like Felicita in the movie or, you know, mm-hmm. other abbesses would actually go, even if they, if they are aware that this is a false mystic, but why they yes. go with this, not, not because they want to get rich necessarily, mm-hmm. but also because these convents are very often at the, you know, the state of being broke, especially new yeah. convents and convents that, you know, like are, are open for, as I said, like for people who can afford the dowry, but like, this mm-hmm. is not an aristocratic convent. So they're, yeah. they're very wealthy convents, but this is mm-hmm. not where, where, where we're at. So, and I think this is very well depicted. Right. And we, you know, and we get very much a sense, right, of the potential economic implications of Benedetta's arguably sanctity, that we actually see people even bringing these offerings to the monastery, that that's something that happens once the town kind of gets wind of these visions. And uh, that there is this conversation between Teki and Felicita about... I guess, oh, about the town of Assisi, right? That the town of Assisi wasn't such a big deal until St. Francis of Assisi has basically made it a big deal by basically just the fact that he was from there. And uh, so that, you know, this kind of wondering of, you know, is there this possibility for our convent in the town brought up by uh, Benedetta's mystical visions? Definitely, yeah. The film, however, I would say does... uh, choose to vastly oversimplify a lot of the details about this actual convent. And in particular, the fact that, interestingly, it's not actually really an enclosed monastery at that point. It's a slightly more informal community. So essentially, it's this group called the Theatines. There isn't really a Theatine order for women, from what I understand. It's that it's really a male order, and they kind of say... I guess will kind of guide you and they're living under the rule of St. Augustine, but they're, they're not exactly your kind of standard enclosed monastery at this point. Yeah. yeah I think not at this point, they actually then choose to become enclosed while Benedetta is, I think is abbess in the 1620s. Yes. Um, so they're, I think they're fairly, so the historical convent is a fairly typical like reform congregation that, blossom everywhere since the 16th century and as women you know they they they're not very many women monastic orders so very often they'll they'll look for a more or less local male congregation because they need them yeah. to minister their you know to their spiritual needs etc so this is not a big this is actually not a topic at all i think in the in the movie um, no i think it's just know, something they're... that they thought was just would have added another complication to the story right I mean, because certainly one one could tell a version of the story which is emphasizing the changes being made to the monastery and its status and of benedetta is playing an important role in that and that's mm-hmm. just not some not what the film wants to talk about it also we'll get into this in a moment it also very much you know part of this is it also really compresses the timeline but we'll talk more about that in a bit we also have this uh, this reference to Sister Jacopa, which I, I found was interesting because it was very much like, oh, so because I actually did read the the book on which it was based, which again, we'll, we'll talk more about in a moment, but I, you know, reread that the other evening. And as I was reading, just kind of came across the fact that 
we know that not in this convent, but in another convent in the same city, San Michele, there is a nun named Sister Jacopa, who is a convert from Judaism. Hmm. And so I was like, oh, it's so, it's so interesting just kind of seeing like, oh, somebody sat down and they read this book and they saw this one detail and are like, that's interesting. Let's put it in the movie. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also one of those, you know, maybe we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this later, but the the, the criticism of both historical and, and the current church that kind of features in this movie, you know, like because in a monastery, in a convent, everybody is supposed to be equal, whatever, and especially mm-hmm. in a, in a, whether it's Benedictine or Augustinian, like whatever you were in the world stays outside. Mm-hmm. Once you put on your habit, you're like, you're one among equals. So it shouldn't matter yeah. if you were a whore, if you were a princess, uh-huh. if you were Jewish, etc. But the way the sister is treated shows you that actually it matters very much. Like yes. a whore is higher in the hierarchy than the, than the, the, the Jewish convert. So it's it's one of those actually fairly subtle but very mm-hmm. um, to the point hints and hits that um, Verhoeven does in this in this movie where he's very critical of well the mm-hmm. hypocrisy of the church right. that's yeah. always been mm-hmm. hypocritic. Right. And, and, and in a way that is, I think, very, very actually realistic, right? That there, that, you know, the, the reality never quite mapped on to the, the ideal of, you know, losing this hierarchy. You never actually really lose that hierarchy. No. No. Something I will note, I just want to make sure that we note that I touched on before, which is not done so well, is this torture instrument described in the film as the pair of English Again, this is not something Verhoeven invented. This is things that you will find in less than reputable discussions of medieval torture instruments are the claim that this object is used essentially to sexually assault people. But it is very much, you know, drawing on this inaccurate information in order to make sure we can, you know, as luridly as possible sexualize the torture of Bartolomea. That. Yeah, because I mean, like everything we can say or not say about medieval torture, I would expect that sexual torture is, it just doesn't really go with the whole concept of, you know, the church. No, and so, no, and there's the way, no evidence for no. that having been a part of torture no. methods. That would have not been justifiable. And yeah, so this, this torture instrument is sort of portrayed as a very potentially painful speculum. <laughs> But this yes. Is <laughs> yes. And we're not and... talking the medieval journal. But um... right. And in terms of even the object itself, so I will note there seems to have, from what I was gathering in terms of what I was reading, some debate about whether it was ever used and if so, you know, whether it was ever used, if it was the earliest, by the way, I will know just would have been the 16th, uh, around the, I think the 16th century was the date I saw as the earliest possible use. Which, you know, fine, the film is the film was 17th century. And that if it were used, it was essentially as basically like a metal gag in the mouth, which, you know, not pleasant, but very different. Yes, very different. <laughs> very different. And, uh, you know, and I very rarely necessarily want to defend the pre-modern church, <laughs> per se. I, I mean, especially like as, you know, as somebody who's Jewish, like, you know, there's not a lot great that I can say about the pre-modern church necessarily. But what one can say is that sanctioned torture, which is essentially rape, is not, is not a thing. That, that, no, no. that level of sexual sadism is not a part of church procedure. 
No, they drew the line somewhere. Verhoeven didn't and doesn't, but the medieval church yes. and the early modern church did. <laughs> yes. The other thing I want to just note in this section, which we have already touched on a little bit, is that one of the things I did also appreciate about this film overall is the extent to which mysticism and religious culture are taken seriously. Yes, definitely. Which is something that is is a big kind of pet peeve of mine in a lot of the films that I watch for this podcast, that a number of them, essentially, everybody is either hypocritical or just like a 21st century atheist. (laughs) and so the idea that you have these people who seriously believe that I think it is interesting that even you know Benedetta is portrayed as to some extent you know as to some extent kind of really believing in these experiences even if a lot of the things kind of you know for us as the viewers sort of cast doubt upon them that I think they're the film kind of does interesting things in terms of uh, taking religion seriously Yes, I agree very much so, actually. And I think it's something that is that is actually very difficult because mysticism is something, at least to me, it's something that is so strange and so difficult yeah. to, to actually grasp. And, mm-hmm. you know, even as a historian of medieval monasticism, this is something I usually run away from, <laughs> even uh-huh. when I have to explain. I mean, like, you know, I've, I've, I've taught, you know, I taught this in, in class to students. And so I can sort of intellectually kind of mm. explain it but it's something that is so um, it's maybe among the most foreign things of, of yes. religious culture and mm-hmm. I think I'm and and I'm not religious either so this doesn't help because I, I would imagine if, if you're like you know profound Christian or Catholic you can mm-hmm. maybe sort of have some sort of access to this but so this is actually something I was I was really really impressed with because it's something I mm-hmm. struggle with to the point that yeah. I'm like I don't want to work on this because it's like I have to you know I come to a point where it's like I cannot understand this because it's too mm-hmm. far away from from everything and it's because it's so emotional you know mysticism yeah. is an emotional connection to God it's 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 love it's pain it's eroticism it's everything but it because you kind of I feel you need sort of an emotional access yeah like yeah. a lot of things about medieval religion medieval society you can actually bridge intellectually once you know Mm -hmm. enough about how this world worked and you know you know enough about feudalism and whatnot you can actually get to this but mysticism for me is one of the things I can never get and so I was actually really impressed that Verhoeven and his team managed to get it yeah (laughs) because it is such this like internal yeah and it is this like internal and affective thing it's something that I find really fascinating and that I always kind of find interesting in terms of teaching and getting a sense of the students' reaction to this as well. But yeah, but then it is also something that, you know, I, I cannot personally connect with what this experience actually would be like. And yet I think, I do think that, yeah, it does this really, I think it does a really effective job of, of visualizing it. Yeah, I mean, still in a movie, I would, you know, show my students like, hey, this is how the Middle Ages worked. I wouldn't go that far, but... <laughs> Because no, but, but yeah, but I mean, he, like, it's, it's one of those themes in the movie where you actually, I think, get a sense that Verhoeven and his team, they know what they're doing, despite yes. all the provocation and some of it cheap provocation, but there's a yes. deeper understanding and knowledge of church, of theology, of religion. Um, Absolutely. Which is probably why the movie, like, this is why 
like when I first, I, I know we'll get back to this later, but when I first watched the movie, I just want to say, this is trashy. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> and it is, but it's also not, which is what makes yeah. it so interesting. Cause it's like, I want to hate this movie. And yet we've been talking about it for like, I don't know, for quite some time. And it, you know, it's like, because, because it's interesting. It's not just trashy. Right. And, it, and I will say that while I wouldn't exactly, you know, show this to my students and say, this is how the middle ages worked. I do teach a medieval at the movies course where we talk about films and the way in which they kind of uh, both represent and help to instill perceptions about the middle ages, you know, as I also obviously do on this podcast. And, uh, I think that this film would be really rich for having some of those conversations about you know, the combination of what it does well and what it doesn't do well. Definitely, yeah. Whereas there are some films certainly that like, really I just kind of dunk on aggressively because they do not do well, so. Right. So at this point, I think we can get into the, uh, the Historia et Veritas segment where we talk about a real person, event, or phenomenon. And today, of course, we will be talking more about the real life of Benedetta Carlini. And of course, the fact that this is one of the rare movies that is technically based on an academic book by a, by a real scholar. So Judith C. Brown's Immodest Acts, The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy. So I'd actually love to get your perspective as somebody who works on uh, medieval women's monasticism and, you know, touches on early modern as well on, I guess, kind of how this book is uh, seen in the field and uh, kind of what some of these sort of discourse is about this book now, especially as something that is uh, a little bit older. This came out in uh, 1986. Mm-hmm. I think that's important to say it came out in 1986 yes. because this is where a lot of, I think, justification <laughs> will draw from. It's, it's always easy to, you know, come down on something 40 years later. <laughs> right. My guess, like the, the current discussion of the book in the field is that there is none. <laughs> and uh-huh. I actually think that for the most part, that is okay, because mm-hmm. the book does not meet current standards uh-huh. in the field. It starts out with a title, what's a lesbian nun? <laughs> uh-huh. And the Renaissance in the 17th century so I mean that there but like let's we we could start there but this is this is you know this is like hair splitting I think the main issue with the book is so that Judith Brown found an amazing corpus of sources yes Uh, you know she has the documents from the trial and Mm -hmm. these documents tell a fascinating story and she tells the story she does some background research on you know the people involved but she never really questions her sources now you know 30 some years later we know that especially when 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 there were reforms going on or the hierarchy of the church took issue with what went on in a, in a convent there are certain ways and procedures they went about that were completely typical and one uh-huh. thing is you started an investigation you send a visitor and they write up a report and usually in these reports you find topoi and these usually involve sex or very yeah. often they involve sex. So I, I had a lot of these in my own research and they're usually not very creative. Like you, uh-huh. could, you have the impression they have like a canon law book next to them and they go like, oh, what did, oh, what's illegal? Oh, let's see, silk clothes. Silk clothing is a big issue mm-hmm. and having sex and children. So right. the, you, you find these topoi then. Um, mm-hmm. reports and some historians in the meantime have gone through the pains to you know to fact check and uh-huh. um, Jean-Marie Legal actually did, did this which is I think is a great example so you have this prioress who's disposed who's deposed 
And the reason is because she was supposed to have had a child in the mm-hmm. year that, you know, just gone by. And the historian actually identified the nun in question and turned out she was 79 at the time, 79 years old. So, you know, this is the fun part about these, mm-hmm. about these sources. Is they, they, they're not very good necessarily like the, the, right. it's easy right. it's fairly easy to to not always but often enough it's fairly easy to to check like if the story is made up and, and there are things that arguably reveal more about perceptions and tropes than they do about real things that are actually happening yes and something um, i think i said this i said this earlier is like if you have an elected church official be it an abbess or an abbot you cannot just go as a bishop say like okay now you're fired Right? right. So you actually need to have certain reason f- to for de- to de- to depose somebody, mm-hmm. and they need to break church law. And one of the things is sex. And some of these lawyers or visitors are more creative than others. I don't want to say that this, you know, that that the story is false. I don't know mm-hmm. that. Actually, I think it would be a great master thesis of some mm-hmm. you know, like Italian MA student to actually yeah. do fact checking on mm-hmm. this. Yeah, uh, and look more into what what the movie is alluding to, the mm-hmm. um, like all the the interests and agendas that people have who are involved in this. So why do they want to get rid of Benedetta? Probably because she's a false mystic. Right. This would still. I mean, what is certainly the case is that the story they come up with this lesbian relationship mm-hmm. is unusual even for the right. more creative <laughs> visitors right. um, and maybe you know maybe it's also maybe it's true but the way it's portrayed here it's it's very it's it's, it's so uncritical that like I think this is the main reason why the, the book doesn't play a role in, in for modern right. scholarship because it's like yeah could be but probably there's different aspects to the story yeah, that it certainly is almost kind of more complicated than the relatively simple and in fact, relatively brief narrative. I mean, so as I said, I, I reread it just kind of out of, you know, kind of to get a kind of sense of, you know, what this backdrop is, right? And it is, in terms of the actual scholarly text, it is 137 pages, which is pretty short. But it's uh, fun bathtub reading. I mean, it's good. Oh, reading. Yeah. oh yeah, it's really fun. It's really a fun <laughs> read. And I will note also that one of the things I will say uh, as just one small plug for the book is the fact that it then does have an appendix with some of these documents in English translation. So that in terms of the way I've actually have used the book is I've actually used the appendix and actually had the students just read some of the sources and talk about them. And so having that as, you know, a resource for especially undergraduate teaching where you can't assume, at least especially in the United States, uh, that you cannot assume language skills, that that is, I think, a really kind of nice resource to have. Definitely. And I don't want to like trash the book at all because in, in 1986 like mm-hmm. there's just been a lot of research done on, on late medieval monasticism and mm-hmm. you know precisely on these kind of documents in terms and context of reform and so if if I had found you know these sources 40 years ago if I had been alive I, you know possibly would have all written the same book because it's just right. so cool you know yeah but, yeah yeah, I mean, it is one of those books that was clearly like she was really excited by these documents, which she was right to be because they are really yes. fascinating. Yeah. 
And so I think it is really interesting that we can kind of see the ways in which uh, the, at least the kind of narrative presented by the documents of Benedetta's life is something that is uh, very, very clearly used in the film, uh, but with these occasional just kind of added sensationalizing touches to the fact that, you know, she, you know, is talked to, is, you know, she has talked about in the film as, you know, her mother had this difficult childbirth. Uh, she was very early in life, uh, vowed by her parents, uh, a vow was made by her parents that she would eventually, you know, join a convent, that she kind of had that Lisa, or she kind of reports at least, or it is reported that she kind of had uh, these sort of early experiences in life of uh, these, uh, of these miracles and of these kind of vision, of these kind of almost like early visionary experiences. And so it's interesting, if I'm remembering correctly, there is kind of patterning that there are exceptions to this, but that often, if I'm remembering correctly, male saints are more often represented as having had a conversion experience and women saints are more often represented as having had a, a kind of lifelong vocation. Yeah. And, or yeah, a, a life that was already mapped out early to. Yeah. You know, so, so this is, it's, it's very, her story reads very much like a typical saints vita like there is some sort of pain in the beginning the difficult childbirth and then very early on you know like she was always meant to become a nun and this is not only external but also internal because she's like this yeah 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 yeah, she she starts to have not, to have visions when she is 23, which you know she is reporting. It's in 1615 that she starts to have this kind of experience of intense pain. And one of the other things that I do think is interesting, which I think does make sense to some extent, is that the film really compresses the timeline so that it has basically Benedetta's entire journey from the beginning of her visionary experiences to becoming abbess to then being deposed and, uh, you know, imprisoned. This all kind of seems like it takes place in the film over the course of like maybe a couple of months. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is like a decade, basically, or near to a decade and includes also these essentially these kind of multiple uh, different moments where we're kind of seeing uh, both a lot of interest in her and a lot of apparent respect for her visions within the convent and of people like Father Ricordati and Cecchi and these other men around, these men around her as well. So this clear interest in her visions and then these kind of episodes maybe of, uh, of investigation and questioning and challenging. There are these things that come up as being problematic, starting in there's a kind of investigation that Chucky carries out in 1619. And so this is the kind of first document that we have surrounding Benedetta, I believe, is this first investigation. And uh, it's interesting in terms of like the kinds of things that come up. So we already talked about the sense of her wanting more attention than was considered to be normal. And one of the kind of big episodes that seems to have to some extent prompted this first investigation based on what we know is that the she has this mystical marriage with Jesus, which is, you know, in itself, you know, not at all unique, but that she essentially requests this really elaborate marriage ceremony that involves like a lot of pageantry and decoration and that they are supposed to kind of sit there and watch while this ritual is enacted, though, of course, they're watching and they can only see Benedetta. <laughs> <laughs> 
and they don't see, you know, Jesus. And I, I can't, maybe like the Virgin Mary and Catherine of Siena were also supposed to have like guested and made some kind of appearance as well. And so there's all of these, you know, central participants in this drama and ritual that, you know, they, and they're just, you know, seeing Benedetta kind of walking around, you know, through this kind of weird pageantry that just everyone's like staring at her. <laughs> it sounds like an awkward wedding party. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of VIPs, but only the bride can see them. <laughs> Right. And it does have like this like intensely bizarre experience that you can kind of understand why after having this intensely bizarre experience of being in attendance of something like this, that people would begin to raise some questions. So at this point, questions are raised. There are also then some kind of interesting things, you know, a, a, a ring miraculously appears on her finger as things come up later. A ring miraculously appearing on one's finger might mean that one drew a ring miraculously, not so miraculously on one's finger. <laughs> but that, you know, essentially the, initially it seems like, you know, they have this investigation, but then basically... There are still some concerns, but she ends up being reinstated as abbess. So, and this is in 1619. And then in terms of the kind of drama of this convent, it is in the following year that the Pope issues a bill which responds to the Theatines petition to actually become a fully enclosed convent. And uh, they do so. And uh, at this point, uh, Benedetta is uh, still kind of functioning or, or again, kind of functioning as abbess. She does, in fact, after this, she pulls a Jesus. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> that this is, yeah, that this is this is coming out of our sources. This like weird episode, uh, and again, this is what one of the things that I find so interesting. Right, is that it like has all these weird details that. I do like in the sense that I often find that these stories that are just, you know, completely made up and have no connection to historical reality, I often find they're not as interesting as the really kind of weird and fascinating things that we find out and read about the Middle Ages. And, and so is such a great well. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like I find it really interesting that a lot of, you know, there, as I said, the timeline is compressed and uh, there's, you know, moments certainly where things are sexualized and sensationalized in ways that go beyond uh, what we're actually kind of seeing perhaps in these reports of her visions or visions in general. But a lot of these details are really very much coming from. Uh, you know, real things that she claimed occurred in terms of visions that she had. Or, you know, as I said, even this death and resurrection, which is weird that this is something that was was alleged. Yeah, maybe there was also, you know, kind of the problem. It was a little over the top already in Uh 1621, right? I mean, like she pushed Mm -hmm. it too far. Yeah. Or, I mean, which is kind of all relative because, of course, Catherine of Siena also pushed it rather far when she communicated with the Pope and told him, like, you know, move yourself back to Rome, etc. So you could also, but you know, when she intervened in politics. And you kind of have to wonder with Catherine of Siena, if to some extent it's that like she sort of conveniently dies and to some extent that kind of cements almost a kind of reputation. Uh, <laughs> and to some extent it's kind of inconvenient that Benedetta was resurrected. You know, if she actually had stayed dead, maybe she, maybe they actually would, you know, who knows, she would be a saint she would today. Have, she would maybe venerate her as a saint today. Yeah, yeah. You know, Catherine, yeah, Catherine of Siena is a saint. So yeah. Yeah, Catherine of Siena is a doctor of the church. Definitely. So, yeah, if she had, you know, taken a little more of that poppy seed, <laughs> Benedetta maybe also would have made it to sainted. But no, she resurrected. <laughs> yes. So she's resurrected. And uh, it is 
you know, sometime after that, uh, so in around 1622, that this papal nuncio in Florence, Alfonso Giloli, starts to be concerned and uh, to start a new set of investigations, arguably with a greater sense of skepticism due to the fact that he doesn't benefit from her sanctity in the way that people, you know, that the provost would have, for example. They're concerned. And so I will note that the people actually does make an appearance in reality or in at least, you know, our represent our, you know, the sources as they represent events. But that in the film, of course, you know, we need the peephole to be used to witness, again, the most sensational episode possible, you know, our Virgin Mary dildo scene. <laughs> I love, I love that in the actual sources, the real thing that's witnessed through the peephole is that <laughs> she has claimed that Jesus, you know, makes her give up, you know, meat and milk. And, but that she really is into, and you can't blame the girl, Salafi and Mortadella. And so they witness through the people are just like chowing down on some salami. <laughs> yeah, like, no, why the same is it this in the movie? <laughs> so much more innocent, but it right. does beg the question: why are there peepholes in convents? Right, especially because I feel like the building is presented in terms of so here I feel like the implication is just like, eh, it's kind of a crack in the wall. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> In terms of in terms of the sense that I have of what was actually happening, this is a pretty new building that they actually kind of built a new a new kind of physical space in I think 1620. Mm-hmm. So why are they building cracks in the wall already? Yeah, this isn't a great sign that there already are these cracks in the wall. Things aren't going well. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but you know, so we do we do have our our real our real peephole. And our, uh, our secret and our salami. Scene. Yeah, our secret salami. And as I, I wish that I wish that scene was in the film. We're just like chowing down on salami. <laughs> we also hear that there's apparently like a bit of a family history of having some kind of like episodes which are thought to maybe be demonic possession. So that's maybe also raising some red flags and also the fact that she's like a little too enthusiastic in disciplining the other nuns. So that like, this is where the, that episode with Christina's flagellation is coming from where she, she did kind of do something quite like this. And, uh, but that this is something that at the time was probably something that was, you know, within the convent itself might've kind of functioned to reinforce her authority, but then kind of gets brought up later as problematic. And well, we, we have our investigation continues. It is at this point that then, at least according to the source material, we have this confession that's made by this woman, Bartolomea, who had been kind of set as Benedetta's companion due to her essentially kind of combination of visions and illness and illness. And that uh, they then, this claim is then made of uh, this sexual relationship, which is I would say even in uh, in some ways even kind of more intertwined in the account and the sources with these kind of allegedly spiritual experiences that it seems as the Benedetta basically kind of claimed constantly that it wasn't actually her it was this angel Splendidello who was the one actually doing anything which kind of is a smart move right yeah because, yeah because this makes her 
innocent. So like, yes. I mean, the only one who confesses to any wrongdoing is uh, Bartolomeo. Right. Because right. she doesn't have an alias who <laughs> right. was having whatever they were having. While poor Benedetta, you know, it was never her. Right. And, and if, Which you know, all- we do, yeah. And also I think interesting in that, you know, it, if this was a real relationship uh, that was, act, you know, or real kind of acts that were actually to some extent, even that were actually happening. Also then, however, smart move by Bartolomea that she very much kind of presents herself as having been kind of forced into this. Right. So, yeah. So nobody's to blame, really. Right. That's why nobody and- can get burned at the stake either. Exactly. So that's why, you know, like they, even if they had wanted to, mm-hmm. because Bartolomea regrets and uh, which is yes. you know, repenting. So yeah, no burning needed here. And um, Benedetta never did anything. If, if anybody did anything, then it was uh, Splenditello. Right. And burn him. So, so no burning going on. <laughs> right. And Benedetta, it is at least kind of easy to make the argument that she has been in some ways uh, deceived by the devil or, yeah. Yeah, or that she's sad and deluded or something. Whether the devil or Jesus, it's not her. Yes. And so, you know, yeah. And so again, you know, the film wants to have this kind of really sensational, dramatic moment, right? Of this mere execution. When in reality, it seems like they just were kind of like, I think maybe you shouldn't be abbess at this point. And it seems even like there, she, she did die at, you know, at, at seven, you know, 70, 71. She died in 1661. The note says that she died after 35 years in prison. Brown makes a lot of this as kind of saying that there must have been like a two-year delay in terms of her actually being kind of imprisoned. I kind of wonder if it's just that 35 is a convenient round number. Yeah, or maybe, you know, like, since we only have these trial documents, we don't know what happened afterwards. Maybe they were like, after the second attempt, they were like, okay, so you can't be abbess, but if if you're quiet, you can just live your life in this convent and she might have tried something again they were like okay fine you know we gave yeah just started started acting up again out yeah but we don't know yeah we don't know exactly what happened but uh we do we do certainly know that uh no attempt was ever made to execute her and that she you know she lived out her days in the convent, mostly it seems like probably in sort of more, a kind of greater degree of isolation, but yeah, not, not executed. Not, not executed. Not, yeah. I mean, the, the pre-modern era was violent and everything, but even, you know, they didn't execute just all the time and for the fun of it, because. Oh, right. I mean, they had, <laughs> they, again, they had their limits, right? Yeah, and so... they did. <laughs> They had lost too. Yeah, yeah. And so this was clearly somebody that ultimately it seems like they basically just decided, like basically we don't we don't need to execute her. Like she's, you know, clearly she's clearly kind of just like deluded. Maybe she's doing this for attention. I don't know, but she's not like a real heretic. Like let's just let's just kind of move along. Yeah, let's just bury the scandal. Also, I mean, there were people who did believe in her. So and they they continue to believe in her. So the Mm -hmm. church was also usually aware of, you know, of avoiding mala fama. So, you know, you don't right. want to, so the idea of, of burning somebody uh, <laughs> while executing somebody, like you don't want to get the people too angry. So right. it, it's kind of 
also more realistic and pragmatic move mm-hmm. of let's forget about her. Let's make right. forget about her. Right. I mean, you know, because something like I mean, there's something like Joan of Arc, right, where she was in fact executed as a heretic, and yeah, then you know several years. Yes, exactly. That then you know a number of years later, then they're like kind of like oh, our bad. Uh, that's that's not really something that you want to have to do too often. Right. And even like, even at the time of her execution, like people were not, I mean, this was not like, yeah, let's burn the witch. So right, spectators, exactly. even among the English who, you know, because obviously she was fighting for the French, even among the English soldiers there, they were like, eh, aren't we maybe, maybe that's not a good idea what we're doing here. So Right. Um, so something like this, right? They they kind of don't want to take the they wouldn't want to take the risk, right? Of uh, you know her her execution not quite inspiring the, what we see in this film, but certainly you know people not fully approving. Yeah, and you don't want to create a martyr. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that is what what it is that we know to the extent that we know things about the real Benedetta. So at this point, we can move into the Fabula Nostra, where we come up with a film or other piece of media inspired by this one. I'm I'm happy to go first in terms of just saying that, like, well, for years I have been saying that they should make movies that take mystical experiences seriously and try to figure out ways to effectively visualize them. And I'm I'm glad they did. And I think it made a lot of other, you know, very kind of weird sensationalist choices that I didn't always love. Uh, but I am going to say that I think it would be interesting to have uh, more films that kind of thought about mystical experiences. And I think that Benedetta's uh, favorite, Catherine of Siena, would be an interesting subject for a film. And I'm going to make the weird suggestion of casting that I think Kristen Stewart trying to pull off a mystical ecstasy would be fascinating. <laughs> so there aren't any movies on Catherine of Siena? Not that I know of, They're, they might exist, but if they do, they uh, have not been like particularly mainstream, I guess I would say. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I think you're right. They should definitely make one. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I would want to see a movie starring Felicita. I really yeah. like The Abyss. I'm usually not a great fan of historical movies because most of the time I get in a really bad mood and be like, oh, they mm-hmm. got that wrong. They got that wrong. Yeah. And often I don't like how they depict women because they're, you know, like they're not these, they're often depicted as subordinate and, you know, this, this patriarchy, et cetera. And I think especially abbesses or, you know, like they lead this convent, they have to take care of the economy. They have to feed these women. They have to guide them spiritually. I think, you know, like these, these are really, they're, they're a bunch of really strong characters. And um, I think Felicita was, was, you know, she was funny at that. And it would, it would be, it would be a different movie because it wouldn't be about, mm-hmm. you know, just praying and, and et cetera, but it would be about like having, showing these women as empowered individuals who, mm-hmm. you know, knew how to read yeah. and write and mm-hmm. who produced art, who worked and who lived most of the time fairly independently from male yeah. control and could actually yeah. have a lot of power. So right. I would, I would want to see that movie. I think. Yeah. I absolutely would love to see that movie. And, and Felicia Ty, I think, would be such a great figure to, to center. And, like, and she really does have most of the best lines in the film. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> she was my favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, she was so great. So we can now rate the film. 
On a scale of one to five, based on whatever subjective criteria you see fit, I I will say I had a hard time with this rating. I ended up settling on a 3.5 in part because I I appreciate, as talked about, you know, the the kind of efforts to depict mysticism, the interest in religious culture and devotion, and the fact actually that I tend to often give films I cover on this podcast points for not being the usual, this movie is very gray and everybody has swords, (laughs) that I've just seen so many versions of that, that I'm always kind of pleased when somebody makes something that's different and that at least is interesting in some ways as a representation of the pre-modern past, even if it doesn't always totally hit the mark. So where then it, you know, loses points is, of course, in being very intensely and overly sensationalized in a lot of ways that there are a number of choices that are made really that, I don't know, that even in some places, like, feel very almost kind of gratuitous and exploitative. I think there are certainly kind of questions to be raised about, you know, this is being a film that a man made and the kind of question of uh, sort of male gaze and male exploitation of uh, women's sexuality. So I definitely have some mixed feelings about this film, but I will say overall, I'm glad that I watched it and have enjoyed talking about it and really was, I would say, you know, fairly engrossed watching the film. (laughs) Yeah, I I share your struggle. (laughs) I settled for a three. The main reason being I really didn't like the movie, (laughs) (laughs) which is... Just because it's just not, it's not my taste. It's not uh-huh. my cup of tea. It's too many of the trashy elements and, and, it's yeah. so, and, and a lot of cheap provocation and the bridge mm-hmm. of the dildo. And so, but, <laughs> is that I have to grant it to, to Paul Verhoeven that he, he addresses, in this movie, he addresses a number of really, I think, interesting issues mm-hmm. And that are very much worth addressing. And many of them, I don't know what it's like in in the US, but I know that these are many of the topics he's actually addressing are big topics in in Europe about the contemporary Mm -hmm. church. So one is definitely the question of women in the church. Uh big movement but actually it's, it's it's making the mainstream press called the Mary Too movement women who Mm -hmm. lobby for more influence in the church Another big movement is addressing sexual abuse. So just the, 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 the arch, the cardinal, the archbishop of Cologne had to resign over mm. one of these things. So, and Verhoeven mm-hmm. is, I think he's Dutch. Yes. Apparently, like, I mean, he's, so, so church and religion are actually topics he personally deals with. And right. I think yeah. he addresses, so he addresses these topics that are, that are big topics and another one is is are the double standards of mm-hmm. the church now and you know today but also back then which is which yeah. is a, topic, a theme that comes you know um is addressed throughout and we, we talked about it and I think this is very interesting and I really appreciate like he has a deep knowledge and understanding of 
both church history, of religion, of all of that. But watching that movie, it makes it very easy to actually overlook all these very legends. Uh-huh. Yeah. Themes. Because, yeah. you know, you have the sword swinging Jesus and you have the, I don't know how often we refer to the Virgin Mary dildo, but I mean, like, uh-huh. but it's just, you know, so, and, and it's. It kind of detracts in some ways, right, from the things yeah, that are done so it's, well. It's very well trashy and, 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 and even splatter scenes. So you can, so what makes it actually, I wouldn't even say a piece of art uh-huh. <laughs> One that I don't like, but still a piece of art. I can recognize that is that you can watch it on several levels. You can just watch yeah. it, as, you know, some stupid superficial movie or, mm. you know, as, you know, a movie that actually has a message. And I very much respect that. And actually, yeah, that's great. I just, it's just not my taste. So that's why uh-huh. so he gets, he gets all the points for the intellectual depth and then he loses all the points for the Virgin Mary Dillow. <laughs> and then it haunts yeah. me. It has been haunting me. Yeah. And, and you know, this film, this film sometimes really had me and uh, sometimes really lost me. Yeah, the Virgin Mary Dillow was a moment in which it uh, kind of lost me. But, <laughs> uh, but there was, there was a lot of watch of the experience of watching this film that I, I will say I actually did genuinely enjoy. Like it is an, it's an interesting story. It is, if the idea of this film appeals to you, I would say it is definitely worth a watch. Oh, I think it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah. It's just not, I just wouldn't guarantee that anybody, you know, I, I wouldn't expect to yeah. like it, but it's definitely, right. I think yeah, it's I think absolutely it's, uh, worth a watch. Yeah. That I think it, I think it'll be to some people's taste and not others, certainly. Yeah. Uh, Very diplomatic, yes. Yes. And I, I definitely to some extent kind of have moments where I'm like, I can't decide fully exactly whether I liked this movie. I, I think maybe I did. <laughs> uh, but I'm not totally sure. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, at the very least means it's interesting. Yeah, let it sink for a couple of weeks. I watched it like a month ago. And at first it was like, oh, I hate it. I hate it. And then, you know, a lot of it actually came later. So I'm glad we're talking about it now and not a month ago yeah. when I watched it. Because I was just, I would have just hated the whole thing. But then I'm like, actually. Yeah, and, and I actually just watched it this week. I have it pretty fresh in, uh, in my mind. And uh, yeah, and still definitely kind of wrestling with some thoughts about it. So, Annalita, thank you so much for uh, spending this time talking with me about this film. Are there places where the listeners could uh, find you on the internet if they wish to do so? Sure. I mean, you could just ask Google and then it'll uh-huh. link to the <laughs> regular academia and, you know, my university page, etc. So, well, and thank you, Sarah, for having me. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, no, this this was great. And uh, so just last notes to the listener. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app. Please rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah H. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Elena, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Des accusations extraordinaires exigent des preuves extraordinaires. Je ne sais pas comment Dieu fait arriver les choses. Je sais seulement qu'il accomplit sa volonté à travers moi. Tu dois faire des aveux complets. Ça Renonce à ta vanité. Pas bon On ne comprend pas toujours les instruments de Dieu. Peut-être a-t-il mis Benedetta en transe. 
ou bien Dieu nous a envoyé une folle qui débite des sottises pour servir ses desseins.